As I said to my friend once when I was six, can I be your best friend and I'll buy you a pencil? Who doesn't want a pencil? Well, hello. Um, I've just turned my email off, dear listener. It's episode two, by the way. It's Will Young, the Wellbeing Lab. What have I been doing today at the Wellbeing Lab? Well, I've been signing about 3,000 3, books. My poor hand. I've got a book coming out. It's an A to Z of Wellbeing, Be Yourself and Happier. And it's just like a, a simplification of many things that I've learned over the last 20 years in therapy. I felt like it was needed. It's taken me a long time to write it. I'm very proud of the results and I hope it helps some people. But really, by the time it got to like 2,700 signings of books, I was very over it. So we are going to speak to two people today, Hannah Lewis or Hannah Kate Lewis. We're going to talk to her about body dysmorphia, something that I don't think is talked about that much. So I wanted to shine a light on it. I don't know masses about it, but I have experienced some body dysmorphia and certainly body shame. Um, on a daily basis, but I blame the Western world for that. Um, and then later on, we're going to be talking to Dr. Helen Kennelly, and we're going to talk to her about CBT. It's a great show. There's some similarities in both interviews when we talk about the amount of sessions you get with therapy. And I think that's very interesting to hear. It wasn't planned. It was all natural. Um, let's have our first guest. Here is Hannah Kate Lewis. She's studying for a PhD in eating disorder prevention and also has personal experience of body dysmorphic disorder. I first got my diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder when I was, let's just call it BDD for short. So I got diagnosed with BDD when I was 18, so when I just left to go to university. And I think actually moving to university was a massive catalyst for me because I, you know, I left my family home. I was living independently and all the support that I got from my parents and my friends from back at home, you know, before I was diagnosed, that sort of just went overnight. Um, and so that's where the BDD sort of symptoms really increased. And when I started to seek treatment, we we sort of traced back the onset of my BDD to back when I was about eight or nine years old, which is extremely young. Um, and there's some really, really profound memories of mine that have stayed in my um in my head for you know throughout my adolescence. And the the one that I would always go back to was when we were so we were eight or nine and all the class had their pictures taken to be put on a wall so we could celebrate everyone's achievements and when I saw a picture of myself, I had my first panic attack. And that was, you know, in hindsight, so distressing. I didn't know what was happening to me. All I knew is that looking at an image of myself gave me this visceral reaction where I was inconsolable. And I was just so distraught because of how I looked. I, I really strongly remember thinking, you know, this person who I'm seeing in this picture is so ugly, they're abnormal, they're malformed, some, you know, some sort of disfigurement's happened, there's been a massive mistake, this person can't be human, they're so ugly and awful to look at. And that sort of, you know, that, those are big feelings for an eight or nine year old, I think. And yeah. how do you, how do you tell your parents that, 
well, I didn't. I just sort of kept that inside for 10 years almost. Um, and sadly, that's not uncommon to to begin having symptoms of BDD and leave it 10 to 15 years before actually seeking help for it. And then did that sort of, how did that for the next 10 years sort of sort of live out? Um, yeah, yeah. How did you cope with it? What kind of things were you doing? So what's, what's really common for people with um, BDD is that when they become fixated on an area of their appearance that they um, feel disgusted by is they engage in something called safety behaviours. And they're like compulsive ritualistic behaviours that a person will do to try and alleviate those really uncomfortable feelings they have about their appearance. So, for example, with me, I started wearing makeup from a very young age. Um, but, you know, it wasn't like your young girl experimenting with their mum's makeup maybe putting a bit of eyeshadow on and things like that it was it was camouflage it was trying to form a mask because I couldn't bear for people to see what was what was behind that mask um so yeah very thick multiple layers of makeup on every day before school which obviously was quite exhausting getting up early doing the whole routine um that I had to do and as well, things like wearing scarves so that people couldn't see like my chin or my neck and certain clothes that would hide like the body parts that I was ashamed of and just just constantly checking, like leaving my lessons to check how I looked in a mirror to make sure everything was was just right, was, you know, at the level that I thought was appropriate for people to see me. Yeah, it was, as you can imagine, just all consuming, just everything that I had to do as a young person was predetermined by how I would feel and how how I'd have to alter my appearance to be the certain way that I thought was acceptable. Yeah. And if I if I didn't do those things, then I would I would just not leave the house, which led to me being, you know, quite agoraphobic for quite a long time, like being afraid of the outdoors. Um and that was very much because I had it in my mind like that was the most kind thing to do to people. Because like inflicting my appearance was so cruel and selfish, I didn't want to do that. Because you know, deep down, I guess I am a nice person somewhere, and I thought, you know, oh, it's, this is the nice thing to do. This is the kind thing to do for me to sort of shut myself away and not not expose myself and be perceived. It's so nice to hear you talk about it because I'm really sure that people who will relate, and it's it's wonderful that you share how once you got the diagnosis what was the process after that and how did it feel even getting a diagnosis gosh it's uh, it's such a weird one because for many people with bdd even when they get the diagnosis they think yeah okay fine but that doesn't apply to me i'm just genuinely ugly people might have this disorder but i don't i just know how i look but there was a moment where i was sitting with the psychologist and he was sort of, sort of going through this checklist for diagnosing people with BDD and everything he was reading out, I was like, oh my gosh, that is, that is so me. That is how I've been living my life for a decade now. Um, and it was a really, yeah, it was a weird sort of light bulb moment because whilst I still had that ambivalence and I thought, you know, oh, maybe, you know, maybe this is a psychological issue. And then I'd be like, oh no, actually it's not. Just hearing the fact that if it was a psychological issue, there are other people out there who would have it and who would have the same experiences as me, 
that was, I mean, that was life-changing, really, just knowing that I wasn't alone in experiencing these really distressing thoughts. And how has it been um, once you got the diagnosis and what kind of process, um, I don't want to use the word treatment because I think that sounds very sort of clinical, but what kind of specific process is there for someone with BDD? Really good question. Um, so, <clears throat> thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So, in in the UK, I don't know if you've heard of it. We have something called the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, and they have all of these treatment pathways for people with different um, conditions. And it very specifically says for people with BDD, they should receive a course of cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, as well as, you know, in some cases, mixing that with um, types of antidepressants. And I was I was really lucky because when I got that diagnosis when I was only 18, I could access that cognitive behavioural therapy. However, I could only access it for six weeks. And that's sort of the limit. Sometimes they extend it if they um, offer you something called high intensity therapy. But it is quite limited in the number of sessions you can have. And don't get me wrong, we made a lot of progress, but to undo 10 years of rituals, compulsions and safety behaviours takes a little bit longer than that sort of six week um, period. And unfortunately, that is the situation for a lot of other people in the UK as well. They will be sort of signposted to one service to access this CVT. And then when it doesn't quite work or they need a bit more support, they'll not quite reach the threshold for like secondary care um, secondary mental health care services. And so what often happens, and this is um, something I definitely experience as well, people with BDD end up in this like no man's land where they're too complex for one service, but not complex enough for another. Um, and so unfortunately, that's what leads people to looking for alternatives like private therapies and things like that. But yes, to answer your question, it should be a sustained course of cognitive behavioural therapy. We just know that accessing that isn't as easy as we'd like. I'm so pleased that you have brought that up because six weeks, that's just so inappropriate mm, for that. It, for, you know, and, you know, I heard you say 10 years of experiencing something. I wonder, like, what now you've been doing your uh, PhD, yeah. is that sort of driving you to thinking, well, this is what really needs to be done? Like, are there be a, what would you, what would you have if, you know, in your ideal world, if we didn't have such a dreadful mental health system? Mm. Which I believe we do, sorry. I guess there's like two ends of the spectrum. I guess to look to, um, to look to like what my work's trying to do is to, intervene early and sort of stop stop that long period of time um in with all those compulsions and rituals in the first place so i'm really keen to uh, embed mental health education but specifically body image education in schools and colleges for young people yeah absolutely hurrah um, i'm lifting up both arms <laughs> thank you and doesn't I, that make sense no it so does but, you know, that is my motivation for doing this because I remember thinking to myself when I was at one of my lowest ebbs, like, oh, this is so bad. I really don't want anyone else to have to go through this. I mean, that's, ama that's amazing that you... Because I've been, I've been reading, um, you know, some of the other things that can come with BDD. So 
anxiety, depression, um, OCD, mm-hmm. um, suicidal ideation, suicidal oh. attempts, you know, um, it must be unbearable to live with that. And, it, and I, yeah, and how wonderful that you in your moment thought, this is so unbearable, I don't want this to happen to someone else. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And I, I when I got diagnosed with PTSD, mm-hmm. what was really interesting is I was started learning about symptoms and then l- learning about causes. And okay. so, and I've noticed we've both lent into the camera, which means we're getting I, know, to I a wish meaty, I had a cigarette like getting, you. <laughs> we're, getting, we're, getting, we're, getting, we're getting to a meaty part, aren't we? Yeah. No, but I like, the fact, I like the fact that your biro, you're holding it. Like <laughs> I know it could um, be. <laughs> I, um, you know, how much is BDD looked at as a symptom of, let's say, something like trauma or... Ooh. Yeah, we're in, aren't we? We're oh, in God, it. it's a million-dollar question, Will. Honestly... Speak, speak to me, sister. <laughs> tell, tell, me, tell me what you think. Well, and I guess you know, it leads on quite nicely to what I was just saying about how I'm so driven to prevent the onset of these problems. But the reality is that... Any mental illness and any mental health difficulty is, you know, the onset is so multifactorial. Like, we've got to think of the genetic predispositions, biological causes, the psychological causes like trauma, and then the social causes like, you know, a person's environment and things like that. And, you know, you can you can sort of hit one of those targets. Like, I would like to hit the, the psychological target by um, introducing body image education, but you know, there will be people, unfortunately, who fall through the net and who do end up being adults living with BDD. Now, you know, you asked before what what would good treatment look like for people who do end up developing BDD. And I've been working with a charity, well, the only BDD charity in the UK called BDD Foundation. And we have started delivering the CBT that people should access on the NHS but we've been delivering it over a course of 20 weeks. And, you know, that, as you can imagine, that's so much better than the piddly six weeks. And the other thing is that it's delivered by people like me who've had BDD, who understand what it's like, who can sort of empathise and extend the compassion because perhaps, you know, they've experienced similar traumas and things like that. To go back to the, the meaty question, though, about trauma, we do spend a lot of time in specifically for CBT for body dysmorphic disorder not CBT for everything but we do spend a bit of time looking at past experiences and how they might have contributed to the onset of BDD so for example for me when you know we try to explore what past experiences might have contributed to the way I think about myself you know it brought up all of these memories about being quite seriously bullied at school about my appearance um I was the tallest in the class which was really funny at first but then kids can be cruel and kids really you know took the how's the weather up there jokes a bit too far and started really spreading horrible like rumors and saying horrible things to my face and it it was just a really difficult time and it wasn't until I got to access CBT and psychological treatment that people really started asking me about that trauma. I'm sorry that you had that experience and I'm thank you for sharing that with me and I'm surprised there's only one charity uh, for BDD because I think it is way more common and I wish that more Mm. 
people would talk about it, you know, I think it's a lot more rife than, than maybe people would say. I know that BDD can go to the point of, you know, people, and I, I, I've listened on your podcast and you're talking about, you know, you felt like you didn't come from this earth and, you know, you're an alien and looking yeah. at your sort of, you know, and, and that, that's major, man. I mean, that it's, really is yeah. major. <laughs> it was, yeah, so mad times. Mean people, mm. Not everyone might feel like that, but yeah. I hope it's something, it sounds like, what you're doing with your PhD is is really looking already and and is making a real difference with and 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 when you finish your PhD when is that by the way oh I'm halfway through so I've done two years I've got another two left has diving into it and studying and doing all this has that helped you a bit of a double-edged sword actually I would say um I like objectively like you know the experiences you just described about when I was younger and I was you know almost delusional thinking you know I can't be human how is this like how has this appearance happened there must be another explanation looking back that's objectively quite fascinating why did Mm. my brain go there why did I think like that um and so I am academically really stimulated by BDD because I think it is yeah. it is so like misunderstood and we just don't know the half of it yet. And it's one of the most under-researched mental um, illnesses out there. I mean, I think there were some stats done by uh, a mental health research charity that saw eating disorders only had 1% of mental health funded and everyone was up in arms. And I agree that's, you know, not enough at all. But I think BDT is even less than that. And wow. it's really shocking because the latest stats, although I agree with you, I don't think we've got the full picture and how many people um, experience it. I think because of the shame and the guilt that people feel. But the latest yeah. stats say something like 1% to 2% of the population. And it equally affects men and women. But yeah, I think researchers who have a lived experience in the topic that they're going into need to be really aware of like their boundaries and their own yeah. well-being and things like that. And I'm so lucky in that my supervisors and my other PhD friends are also supportive. And if I was ever feeling vulnerable, they would totally understand like that I couldn't do a piece of work or I couldn't write about someone's experiences of BDD because it was just a bit too close to home that day. Um, yeah. So yeah, like I said, it is that double-edged sword where it's so fascinating, but at the same time, it—I don't know—it really, again, it makes me just think, oh my god, I can't believe what you're saying. I felt as well. It's yeah, it, yeah, that's a bit mad. How is it presently uh, with your management of your own BDD? If that's—is that? I mean, I've said it in that way. Is yeah, that the right way? Of- I think that is the right way to be honest, Will, because I think. With BDD and I guess with like mental illnesses as a whole, I don't think it's super helpful to think of it like you're ill and then you're not, or you're you're symptomatic then you're not, um, you're poorly and then you're well. Because I think like that's just that's not really a very accurate representation of how humans experience distress. I don't think. And yeah, I think you know you use the term management. I think that's really accurate. I think I do manage it. I do live day to day with it and sometimes I manage it better than other days I really would love to know and I've been thinking about this so much continually actually to be honest most days what do you think can be and it's a big question but what is it that's so wrong with our mental health services and I'm not throwing people under the bus not the people that are involved in it but the overall thing 
first things first, we're only recently in the realm of talking about mental health in the way that we do. I think for so long, you know, I mean, I think it was only in the 70s that like there was this massive push from um, for deinstitutionalization. So that was where people were to be seen in the community rather than just put into a hospital and forgotten about. And, you know, we love that, obviously. We love people um, to be living in the community despite their diagnosis of a mental illness. Um, but I think that that community side just hasn't lived up to its ambition yet. Mm. And don't get me wrong that exactly like you said there are brilliant people who work in the nhs as brilliant mental health professionals and they're not the problem i think it's the service design so this idea of having all of these hoops to jump through like i've like i've been saying you know throughout our chat today people have to be the right level of sick like, yes, like hitting um, hitting markers yeah exactly yeah. it's like you know if you have you know, if you experience certain symptoms, oh, but you have this as well, then you can't be seen by primary care. But then if you've not got certain symptoms, then you can't access secondary care either. And so that's when people end up getting really unwell and, you know, might end up yeah. in hospital or something. So I think, gosh, there's really not a short answer, but I would say attitudes, to be. attitudes yeah. are a big one and then thresholds in services. That's amazing. I mean, you know, what you've said is so interesting that you talked about community care and and those kind of markers so no it's really interesting to hear hear what you think because i because i think you're someone that's changing stuff that's oh why watch i wanted this space. to know leave it with me watch this watch this frigging <laughs> space hannah hannah it's been such a pleasure talking to you um really wonderful and uh enlightening actually you know hearing hearing what you've had to say. So thank you so much for being my guest on Desert Island Discs. <laughs> thank you for let's having just call me. It Desert, let's just call it Desert Island Discs. Yeah. Fuck it. No, no Fuck one's it. used that name before. That's fine. Exactly. No one has. Who cares about copyright? Not me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up now, Dr. Helen Kennelly um, from Oxford. Uh, she's a consultant clinical psychologist and an expert in CBT who's been working in the field since the 1980s. I feel like we've got a bit of a coup here, actually, because a professor, a doctor, I don't know, in Oxford, I just feel like, you know, I feel like I was sort of tapped into the main frame of someone very intellectual, vicariously living through her. When I used to live in Oxford, actually, I worked as a waiter, but I used to pretend that I was a student there. (laughs) I wasn't, I was retaking my A-level. Um, but just being in Oxford made me feel, one, clever, and two, like I was one step closer to Inspector Morse. Um, let's have a listen to the interview. It's really interesting how she dissects cognitive behavioural therapy. I'm coming in with a big question, and I don't know what the answer is. Do our feelings drive our thoughts, or do our thoughts drive our feelings? Chicken and egg. Mm. Sometimes we will have a feeling because our brain can generate emotions before we're conscious. So we'll have a feeling and then we'll respond to it more intellectually. Sometimes a thought crosses our mind very intellectually and then it kicks off a feeling. So, for example, I could be driving along and because you know we're set up to survive, um, our brain is able to generate a... a an anxious response before we're even conscious about what's made us anxious. And we've all had that experience. You're sort of driving along and you just get that that whoosh of, of anxiety. Mm. And then you think, oh gosh, there's something in the road. Mm. But you've you've had the whoosh of anxiety before you've had the thought. So there's there's our, you know, feelings driving our, our thinking. Other times it might be the other way around. So I'm walking down the street and I have the thought I hope everyone isn't looking at me. I think people might be looking at me. If they're looking at me, I'm, I'm worried they're going to they're gonna be thinking I look stupid. That's the thought that then would start to fuel mm. a lot of anxiety feelings. Does that, does that make sense? Does that... Make, it makes complete sense. And quite a few years ago, when I got very... Well, I mean, I had a bit of a breakdown, to be honest. Not a bit of a breakdown, it was a breakdown. Um, ultimately, a, a breakthrough, of course. However, that's a nice way of putting it. Mm, and it was, it really, really was. But it was difficult, you know. Um, mm. But there was some really brilliant, I can't remember what the handbook was. It was someone Burns handbook. and um, David Burns feeling good. That's it. And there were some brilliant exercises. And at the time, I was very agoraphobic. And what was amazing was some of the exercises that was like, it was like I was taking my brain to the gym, you know, fact checking because I might go into very black and white thinking of like, well, this is never going to happen again, or everyone's looking at me, you know, and then it's like, well, here's a tool. Let me just fact check that. And do I know that to be a reality? Um, That really helped with me. Uh, Thought blocking, um, Mm -hmm. or the system of idea of just having a thought and then moving it on. I mean, that was something that I worked hard at. 
for about a year. And honestly, I think I do it in, a, in nanoseconds now. A thought might come in yep. and just be like, oh, I'll just pass that on. I would go to parties and I'd have to rate how anxious I was feeling before the party, what I think might happen, and then how I think I might feel afterwards. And then I'd come yep. back and actually fill out the score. You know, and all these all these tools that were just... I mean, they made a massive difference in my life. Can you talk a little bit more about those kind of tools and structures that can be used and also the kind of thinking that we can do that can get us into like black and white thinking or all those kind of stuff? First of all, all of us, any of us, can be prone to the sorts of thinking biases that you're talking about, the all or nothing thinking, the catastrophizing, the personalizing, the overgeneralizing. And typically, and again, for any of us, it will typically happen as our mood state gets more stressed. Any of us will go into that sort of bias or our mood state gets lower and lower. And as we sort of move towards high stress or low mood, then our thinking does become more biased. So we're going to be more prone to that thinking and for many of us as our mood shifts back to the norm that thinking is is less apparent some of us though have a bit of a tendency to adopt certain extreme ways of thinking and you've described some beautifully the all or nothing thinking the catastrophizing and you've also described the way that we help people deal with that and the first thing you said, although I don't think you put it into words, but in effect, you said it, you learned to step back, mm. kind of just I mean, in, in the jargon, we call it decentering. Even a, a tiny little pause can do it, but you learned to pause before you bought into the, the thinking. Mm. And in that time of pausing, what CBT can offer and, and you know what you've clearly been able to use are lots of different tools that we can then you know, sort of dig out of our toolkit um, in order to check out the veracity, the reality of that thought. And sometimes what we realise is, hang on, it isn't that all or nothing. Hang on, it's not that bad. There are things I can do. It isn't that hopeless. And then we can move on. Um, and we can move on by going down a sort of, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to face this and tackle it route, which would be the problem-solving route, or we can um, deal with those thoughts by thinking, do you know what? I'm not going to give it airspace. I'm going to park it and walk away. Mm. And we've got these different options. And as a CBT therapist, what one would hope to do is make oneself redundant because we hope that we can give the people that we're working with the understanding and the knowledge and the skills so that they can go away and be their own therapists. And it actually sounds as though that's exactly what you've been able to do. Yes, it really was. And it's making me think, you know, I think I started with the help of CBT to allow my brain and actually make train my brain to work for me, not, a, yeah, not, not against, against me. Yeah, yeah. Which seems... Yeah. One of the almost, I'd never thought about it before, but that's like one of almost the premises of CBT in a way. Absolutely, because you know ev everything that we do is good up to a point, but beyond that point, it starts to work against us, not for us. So, you know, anxiety is fantastic up to a point because it's because I have anxiety that I look both ways before I cross the road. Keeps me safe. Up to a point, everything that the brain can do is helpful and you're spot on what cbt would aim to do is not 
eliminate anything, but help people to harness their potential mm. so that, as you said, the brain works for them, not against them. But you also, you had a, another phrase that I think was really, really pertinent. And that was, you said, it's, it's like you took your brain to the gym. Mm. And what that captures beautifully is that CBT does require people to be very active and to work very hard. It's a talking therapy, yes, but it's more like joining an evening class, really, mm. where you're learning something. And between the sessions, you're going to be practicing the piano or learning Italian vocabulary or whatever. So it is a talking therapy, but it's a talking therapy that demands a lot of hard work from the individual. But you put the hard work in, you get the results. I was going to ask you, because I, mean, I was sharing about how I started using CBT from the David Burns handbook, and, and then I protracted post-traumatic stress disorder, and I got depersonalization and disassociation, you know, and it was really not not very nice. Um, and and I, I read something, and I, I'm so thrilled to ask you this, because I've never asked a CBT practitioner. I remember reading an account by someone that was describing a traumatic hijacking of the of the brain so you know mm-hmm. when one feels you know a flood of emotions and how yeah how he went to see a cbt practitioner and because the person was just using cbt as a model and not taking into account what was going on in the person's body he said you know being told for example to go outside and use cbt tools was like mm. telling me to walk outside and I knew I was going to get hit by a thousand lightning bolts because my body was in such hypervigilance. Yeah. How does one manage the things that CBT doesn't touch with clients and, and that they don't feel, I suppose, ashamed that they're not being able to, you know, do it? The first thing I would say is that cognitive therapy is, quote, a formulation-driven therapy, meaning it's based on an understanding of this person in front of me and all their experiences. So actually, if one is carrying out cognitive therapy, one should be understanding the person in the room beyond their thoughts and you know beyond their behaviours, but also we should be understanding their feelings, their feelings at an emotional level and their feelings at a physiological level. So in fact, good CBT would take into account all of those aspects, the thoughts, the emotions, the physical sensations, and we try to understand how they all kicked in and interacted so that a person was uh, restricted in what they could do rather than liberated in what they could do. So Mm. my feeling is a good CBT intervention would embrace all that. And then recognising that a good CBT intervention would involve supporting somebody in going out there and, and using the CBT techniques, but in a very sensitive and, and graded way so that a person had the experience of little by little, I'm getting on top of this. Mm. I'm building on a series of successes. So I think that an ideal course of CBT would start off with a really full understanding of the patient's experiences in all modalities, including the physiological. Mm. And you can't work with fears and phobias without really understanding what's happening in the body because it's, mm. it, you know, it's such a physiological thing. And then 
as a therapist, one would encourage a person to start using CBT techniques, but in that paced, planned way, so that constantly they are realising, I can do this, Mm. I can build on this, I can achieve this. You know, just like you wouldn't put somebody in, you know, in the seat of a car, turn on the engine and say, off you go. You would take them, you know, coach them through, you know, building up their driving skills. Otherwise, you ask me for trouble. I mean, I think CBT, you know, has has been so helpful for me. And and even when I got very ill with trauma, and it really was such a physiological, Mm. you know, I mean, it was a, you know, physical, physiological illness. Um, The the groundwork that I've done in CBT has still, you know, stuck with me and, you know, really does does stick with me. It, It makes me think of a few things. One, I'm really interested in your opinions on, I know it can be so difficult for people on the NHS to sort of, they might get an initial course of six sessions and then to get to the next six and that, that's always, that, oh, that always upsets me, you know. That's, that's a real problem because I think that in, in this world where CBT is restricted to six sessions, that's when we see CBT being rushed and concertinaed and then it doesn't work. That's when a patient is sent out to use the toolkit yes. before they've had the proper preparation. That's and, very interesting. You know, that, that, that was never the vision of CBT. It's not what the NICE guidelines tell us really? either. They, you know, the guidelines are drawn up by a committee that uh, looks at research so that the guidelines are evidence-based, and then they make pronouncements. For example, if you're offering CBT for depression, then you need to be offering 10, 12, 16 sessions. That's what the research tells us. And anxiety disorders, probably slightly fewer sessions uh, with post-traumatic problems. We're looking at more sessions. And we have these empirically founded guidelines that come from the government And yet uh, health authorities find themselves so cash strapped that they start to have to cut corners. And so we're not actually giving the therapy in the dosage that we should. It's like giving someone half a course of antibiotics. It must be very... How how do you feel about that? I think we're, we're, we're all very unhappy about it because if we have the luxury of using cognitive therapy properly then it can be transforming oh, because not only does it help a person now it gives them the tools for life yeah. if they get some uh, too short half-baked not personalized enough experience of cbt a it probably doesn't help them in the moment b they're not learning lessons for life and c they might go away thinking well cbt's rubbish mm. And they might give up on CBT. So they might not do what you did by a self-help book. And I think in, if, if one can't get a full course of, of CBT, one can try to supplement it with the self-help material so that you're kind of carrying yourself along a bit and, and, and that combination of self-tuition with the expert input might make the difference mm. between benefiting from half a dozen sessions in the NHS and not really benefiting. Having said that, I have to say some people benefit from that half dozen sessions because you know some some therapists still work magic, but it's it's not the ideal. We want to be able to offer every patient that comes to the NHS for CBT the right amount of sessions for them. 
And in your opinion, what does the NHS need then to allow that to happen? We need more money. We need yeah. more money and more resources, yeah. Because the demand for for psychotherapy is huge. And I wouldn't want anyone who hears me talking so enthusiastically about CBT to go away thinking, well, she's saying that CBT is the only one. No, it's not. It's For me, it's a very compelling and exciting one. But there are times when people need a, a very, very, very somatically focused therapy mm. and times when actually they've moved on, their needs have changed and they can access a different therapy and they can develop a different set of assets and resiliences. Helen, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you and hearing you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, I'm well aware that people can listen to podcasts who don't necessarily live in the UK, even though I do. So there are a lot of mentions of the NHS, which is our National Health Service, and also services that they provide. And I just think it's important to show that I know that there are people that might be listening to this who can't access those services. Well, I asked you to get in touch, dear listener, about body dysmorphia, and you have, and I really appreciate it. So I'm going to read out your um, stories and your messages. The first one is from a male. I'm 36 years of age and I've had body dysmorphia since I was about 14 years of age or younger. I was diagnosed with it when I was 17 or 18. It's been a problem my whole adult life. It first started always thinking people were looking at me when walking on the streets and in shops because of my weight and how I was looking. Then I started looking in the mirror at my body and pinching my skin to see how much fat I have, which is something that I constantly still do to this day. I do this as soon as I get out of bed every morning and before I go to bed and during the night when I'm struggling to sleep. Most nights I can get out of bed and can obsess about this and it can cause me to binge on food as a comfort, which then leads to self-loathing and depression. It has affected my confidence and self-esteem and has had a big impact on relationships, especially when it comes to women. I always think they only want to date slim or muscular guys and I always tend to compare myself to other guys as well as I want to look like them body-wise. Whenever I've been in a relationship, I don't like to get changed or undressed in the same room as my partner. I also won't ever go swimming when asked because I don't like people seeing my body, so I cover myself with my arms. I've tried to seek professional help as I'm desperate to change this way of thinking and living in constant fear and loathing. That's so sad. Um, When I saw your tweet about this project and the comments from fellow sufferers, I felt it, well then now this is lovely, I felt a sense of relief that I was not alone and that I could reach out and talk to someone. Well that is brilliant because you're not alone and you can reach out and talk to people. And often online actually, you know, just hearing other people's stories. Um, and also this person says he, um, he's had CBT a few times to try and help but unfortunately it never worked. Um, the next message is... From a female, I'm 45, I'm a single mum to three amazing, beautiful, perfect daughters but sadly, however hard I try... And having had various professional help along the way, I struggle on a daily basis with anorexia and body dysmorphia. It's soul-destroying and I wish I could find a way to cope. It's torture day in, day out to feel so disgusted by yourself and to feel repulsed by what you see in the mirror when you just look at yourself. So many tears, so many cries for help, feeling so bloody lost and unbelievably scared. I've been let down most of my life by doctors and mental health teams 
um, fobbed off and pushed from one to another team. I think there are various ways people deal with their illnesses, hide their problems, feel embarrassed or ashamed. I'm a talker. Good. I need to talk. I have to talk about it all or my head will explode. I know that feeling. I crave reassurance. Ditto. I crave acceptance, approval and crave to be loved. Thanks for reading and for listening. Well, that's Listen, thank you for getting in touch and sharing your story. And it's great to talk. It's very important. This one's from a female. I have severe body dysmorphia after losing eight stone in weight and getting an abdominoplasty. I feel like an alien in my own body. The procedure has left me with terrible scars and I often feel a lot larger than I am. This is from a male. I'm 42 next year and have suffered body dysmorphia my whole life. I can have 20 people tell me I'm handsome and have a nice body, but I feel they are lying. I hate everything about myself and it really affects me at times. I wish I could find a way out of seeing hideous things and see the nice things I have. I know I'm not the only one to feel this way. No, you're not. And this is from someone who is non-binary. Since I can remember, I have always struggled with the way I looked, the way the world perceived me and what I saw in my reflection. I remember watching the film Mulan for the first time at four years old and I would play and replay the video just to listen to the song Reflection again. It resonated so much with me as a child, but I could never explain why. As an adult, I came out and started to medically transition, but was still uncomfortable in my own skin despite the changing features. I continued to explore my gender and my body, acknowledging that I identified more as non-binary. I'm happier when I'm perceived with no gender. Navigating such a gendered world creates a lot of pressure on who I am. People debating my life and my rights, people judging my body and what I look like, me judging how I do or don't fit into society and so much more. Wow, I mean, that is so many different contexts um, and situations and also lots of similarities. And, um, you know, I really, really appreciate all of you getting in touch. And I'm sure that you sharing your story will help other people. Well, I've read that it already has. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. And it really moves my heart. And hopefully you start sharing with each other. And that's something that we can all develop together and create a sort of a safe space. Because one of the biggest things about having any physical, psychological illness, for want of a better word, is it can isolate one and make one feel very ashamed. So let's get rid of the shame and rid of the isolation and just focus on that problem, people, because we don't need the shame or the loneliness. I'm grateful for you uh, and I'm grateful for talking about these issues in this space. It makes me really informed, happy, educated and reminds me that we're all, you know, human beings. We are not human doings. I love you all. Till the next episode, goodbye. If you'd like further information on anything discussed in this episode, we've put some useful links in the show notes. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the ACAST Creator Network? It's true.